Go ahead and head that way, my right, your left, or to hear age-appropriate truths of, about God from their teachers. All right. As they are going, let's go ahead and go back to the Lord in prayer one, one more time and just ask that he would open up our eyes, open our hearts to receive his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Oh God, prepare our hearts to accept your word and silence in us any voices but your own so that we may hear your word and also do it through Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder how you would define the word success. What does success look like to you? Maybe it's when the bank account is full, your job is going well, your health is in tip-top shape, or maybe you're really uh, doing a great job in school and receiving good grades. I've read that the definition of success is achieving what you want to and being happy. Achieving what you want to and being happy. In those times, it can be pretty easy for the Christian to trust God. If things going our way, it can be easy to trust God. You might even say that uh, easily that God is blessing us. God has blessed us. We've been blessed with an abundance. Um, and sometimes we consider our so, someone else's abundance as success. That is what it means to be successful. It would be understandable for someone, uh, I'm sure easily, to if they got a new BMW, to get one of those little license plate put on the front that says blessed or hashtag blessed. That would make sense. But if someone was driving a, a 20-year-old Ford Windstar and put that same bumper or license plate there on the front, might be like, what? What? That's, that's the blessed life? That car looks like it's about to break down. <laughs> that, does, that doesn't seem like it's quite lining up to my idea of success or blessing. Even though all of our modes of transportation are blessings. It's easier to consider our lives as a success when things are going the way that we want them to. That makes us happy. But what about the difficult days? Christian, is God blessing you on the hard days? When days of drought, difficulty come into your life, does that mean God is no longer blessing you? question you should be asking is not whether God is working on your hard days, but if you'll trust him even on those days when things don't seem to be going our way. Well, we're going to see in our text today that things don't go Joseph's way. They do for a little bit of time. He's successful, but they don't go his way the entire time. And so what I want you to walk out of here, what I hope that you walk out of here this morning is our big idea for, for the morning, and it's this. With God, success is not based on abundance, but on abiding. That with God, success is not based on or defined by abundance, but it's based on abiding. We're going to look at each point of this big idea this morning. We'll start out with Point one, which will be what with God. We'll get there in a second, but then the second point, we'll look at success doesn't mean the abundance, but success does mean uh, abiding. That is what 
success should be based on. We'll see this most kind of centered around this theme that we see a repeated phrase in Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph, which is where we'll again begin our morning, which is just the beginning of our big idea. And that's number one, with God. With God. What does it mean to be with God or for God to be with us? Well, as we see in chapter 39 here, the story of the life of Joseph is picking right back up where we left it in chapter 37. In the last verse of that chapter, we read that the foreign traders had sold him, Joseph, into Potiphar's house. Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And we might even get the idea that this was going to be a demanding job. That for Joseph, this was going to be hard labor. Chapter 39 then picks up right away, reminding the reader where Joseph is located in Egypt, the house of Potiphar. And and it says again, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him. So the first thing we kind of gather out of this new life circumstance for Joseph is that he is now a slave. This was not a voluntary position. His life had been purchased. He is now someone who does not belong to himself, but he belongs to a military captain. Next, notice the phrase that's used two times in verse 1 to describe his trip to Egypt. I think this is fascinating. Moses writes, I think intentionally, he says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And later, in verse 1, he was sold by the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Maybe this doesn't stand out to you as significant, and and if not, that's okay. There's a subtle hint here that Joseph has died. He's six feet under. He's gone down, as it were. It echoes his father's own statement of sorrow at the end of chapter 37. If you look over there in verse Uh, Let's see. Uh, Sorry. It's over there at the end of chapter 37. Uh, But it says this. Jacob is informed of his death and he says, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning, he says. I shall go down to Sheol. This Sheol is this realm of the dead, just basically the, the land of the dead, or it simply means death. So Moses is actually very intentional here to remind his readers that in the eyes of Jacob, the the, the holder of the covenant at this point, his heir, his heir apparent, his favorite son has gone down to death. Jacob's perspective, Joseph is dead. Yet from God's perspective and in all reality, God was protecting Joseph. He had not died, but was being protected under the fatherly hand of God's providence. The irony is that in the rest of Jacob's life, Jacob would actually not go, end up going down in death to see Joseph, his son. But actually at the end, Joseph would be holding his father, Jacob. And Jacob would end up dying after having gone down to Egypt to see his Son, It's a surprising reversal that we get here in the story of Joseph, but before we get ahead of ourselves, the questions that this introductory verse raises are this, how far down will Joseph be brought? Will he end up dying in Egypt away from his family, away from the covenant? 
What hope is there for him in a foreign land, far away from the family of blessing? As a purchased slave, no less. For Joseph, all hope seemed lost. But his brother's betrayal of him could not thwart God's redemption plan. Notice who went down to Egypt with Joseph. Look back in verse 2 with me. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. The Lord was with Joseph. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, was present with Joseph as he went down to Egypt. This beautiful phrase repeated four times in this chapter reminds us of God's presence with his people. In verse 3, we see the effect of God's presence with Joseph. Look there with me. Joseph's master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. Verse 21, while in prison, we find that Yahweh was still with Joseph. Verse 21 would be the third occurrence of this phrase, the Lord was with him. We see that in verse 21. And then in verse 23, Joseph was given charge of the prison because the Lord was with him. Oh, what a, what a wondrous comfort this was for Joseph. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once gave a sermon on the life of Joseph, and this very phrase was the, the whole point of his sermon. A couple other examples he gives as Scripture summarizing the life of a man or a woman in a single phrase. For Abraham, he points, it says, Abraham believed God. That was the phrase that highlighted Abraham's life. The man Moses was very meek. King David was a man after God's own heart, and the apostle John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Spurgeon then made this parallel. As Michelangelo is said to have drawn a portrait with a single stroke of his crayon, so the Spirit of God sketches this man's life in a single sentence. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord be, being with Joseph became the headline for Joseph's life. And friend, I wonder what the headline for your life would be. If your inner biography was sketched, what would the outcome be? Imagine your inner life, your thoughts, desires, affections were set out in detail for all the world to see what phrase would describe you. Well, it seems as though the Lord's being with Joseph actually caused him Joseph to work in a way that was pleasing to his new master, to Potiphar. The Egyptian caption, or captain recognizes there in verse 3 that Yahweh was with Joseph and that success follows wherever Joseph goes. And so being as a pragmatist, as any pragmatist is, we find Potiphar putting an abundance, the abundance of his wealth under Joseph's charge. If Joseph is blessed and he takes blessing wherever he goes, I'm going to put everything under his hand. I'm going to put all my stocks. I'm going to buy out all Joseph's stocks. I'm going all in on Joseph. 
Now, many in our day will look at Joseph's professional promotion here as the defining mark of God's blessing and presence with him. Basically, if you've got the, the high position in the company, if you've got the Maserati, the, the vacation home in Mar-a-Lago, if you've got the luxury boat on the lake and the stacked 401k, then God must be smiling on you. But we'll see this morning that the point of this passage is not that, that Joseph did all of these things and then God was happy or that that was the only evidence because things would be taken away from Joseph in our story. With God, success is not based on abundance, which brings us to our second point this morning, that success does not equal abundance, is not based on abundance. Notice the little is not equal to in there in case can't see that. I believe that generally in our world, success being defined as achieve what you want to and, and be happy, uh, that, that would hold true for much of our society. But let's see if that holds true for Joseph. We're going to spend a little bit extra time on this since we're going to be covering four, verses 4 to 18. So let's look and see if this definition of success holds true for Joseph. Now, we see right away in our chapter, that success was a defining, uh, a, a defining word for Joseph's professional career, if we can even call it that, given he was a slave and it wasn't voluntary. But verse 2 calls him a successful man. And verse 3 says that the Lord caused all things to succeed in his hands. Of course, Joseph did not volunteer to work for Potiphar. Even so, he finds himself in the service of Potiphar. And it's not as though Joseph is a musician and just shows up and snaps his fingers. Everything's great. Everything is blessed. He puts in the hard work for his master. He works heartily with his whole heart in whatever he does as for Yahweh and not merely for Potiphar. I wonder if you've been assigned a project at work uh, that you didn't volunteer for, maybe because of, of that boss. And that boss is a little bit of a stickler. Perhaps your company hired a new manager, and when they found out that you're a Christian, they started maybe giving you a little bit more difficult of a time. Stay-at-home moms with young kids, you've got the most ungodly bosses. Am I right? Running around, spreading the reign of terror all over your home. Who are you actually working for? Are you working with your whole heart? What does success actually look like for you? Well, let's pick up in verse 4 and find out for Joseph what success might have looked like there in verse 4. So Joseph found favor in Potiphar's, his sight, and attended him. And he made Joseph overseer of his house. Wow! Because of gaining Potiphar's favor, Joseph actually becomes his attendant, or more literally, Joseph ministered. He was his minister. He ministered, serviced him personally, and also became an overseer of his house, which could also be translated just a high steward. He was the high steward of Potiphar's house. But Joseph didn't just oversee the dealings of the house. One repeated phrase shows up and shows us that the abundance of Potiphar's property and, and, and prosperity was placed under Joseph's care. Look there at the end of verse 4. Potiphar put him in charge of 
all that he had. Verse 5, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, we see the blessing of the Lord was on all that he, Potiphar, had. And then in verse 6 even, Potiphar so trusted Joseph that he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. The abundance of Potiphar's prosperity that was under Joseph's charge is seen in a merism, a merism uh, that we saw a couple weeks ago, but it's found at the conclusion of verse 5. Uh, a merism, if you remember, it, it gives two poles, completely opposite poles, and basically says everything in between is included in this merism. And so uh, we see there in, at the end of verse 5, to show the wide reach of God's blessing on Potiphar's house, that God blessed everything in the house and field. In the house and in the field. Those are two poles of, of the working order of Potiphar's house. And so everything in the house and in the field was being blessed by God. Maybe Joseph himself actually had remarkable administrative talents. Maybe he treated people with remarkable kindness and thus was a great leader, very decisive, yet kind. We're, we're actually not sure exactly. We get the idea that Joseph might have had some unique talents of administration, considering that he led Egypt through a seven-year famine. Notice, though, that Joseph's success was not dependent on whether he was over everything or not. Back in verse 3, before he was even given charge of anything, the Lord was causing everything to succeed in his hands. Then after being given charge over everything in Potiphar's house, Joseph was successful there. So much so that in verse 6, Potiphar is described as having no concern about anything. That could just as easily say that Potiphar didn't know anything about his own household Affairs because Joseph had showed so much integrity in heart towards Potiphar's prosperity, towards Potiphar's abundance. We see this integrity and humility carry into then the story that follows in Joseph's, after Joseph's rise to leadership. We get in the second half of verse 6, which in your Bible might actually be the beginning of the next paragraph, a description of Joseph's appearance. It says, he was handsome in form in appearance. Now, these are the exact words used by Moses to describe Joseph's own mother, Rachel, as Jacob is with Laban and the two daughters of Laban are presented before him. It says that Rachel was beautiful in appearance, in form and appearance. And the same words are used, they're just changed. We don't normally call men beautiful, so it's changed to handsome for our English renderings. And so we could just as easily say it describes him as beautiful in form and appearance. Now we see very clearly that Potiphar's wife <laughs> begins a liking for Joseph. She begins liking it, so she comes up with a plan. We see very clearly her desire then to have sexual relations with Joseph. She schemes to wear down his defenses and finally realizes that her last resort might have to be a power play. She is the wife of the head of the household. He is still a servant. So she commands Joseph, lie with me. Lie with me. This was not an invitation. This was not a, 
a seduction. This was a person in a position of power giving commands to another without any. If he caved and things turned sour, he could lose everything. And this story, the story shows us at the bare minimum that it's not only women who might voice experiences of sexual abuse due to power dynamics, but oh, how similar this story sounds to our ears of story after story, both inside the church and outside the church, of men and women in situations where a leader with authority, whether in a company, a family, or a church, schemes to take advantage of those under their leadership. You might be sitting here and this is your story. Know that God sees what he or she did to you and he will judge their wickedness. How many times we even see in scripture where leaders are using their authority in service or not using their authority in service of others. Jesus would see people under this very kind of leadership and would have compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is why it's so vitally important for leaders in the church to line up with the qualifications that the New Testament gives in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Practically speaking, Joseph has the physical strength to say no. Not all in this power dynamic situation do, but Joseph does. He has the ability to refuse and elude his master's wife for a time. And in verse 8, we see that he refused. And then he rebukes her, giving truth to her. He, became, he becomes a friend of truth. He gives three reasons why he can't do what she wants. First, because Potiphar has entrusted everything in his charge. He can't betray him. Second, Potiphar has specifically withheld his wife from Joseph. Third, because it would be a sin against God. But then look at verse 10 to see her response, her regard for Joseph's rebuke. And as, he, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. She didn't say, oh, okay, sounds good. I'll let up. Day after day after day, she went to Joseph, commanded, you're a slave, lie with me. Joseph was a successful man. In the eyes of the world, he was successful. He was good looking. He probably held himself with confidence because of the high position he had been given. And had Joseph, based on this definition of success, based on abundance, had he believed that, he might have swelled with pride and began, actually, maybe I should. Why shouldn't I? I mean, her husband isn't even here to satisfy her needs. Oh, but oh, sick and twisted. That thinking is, Joseph rightly calls it wickedness. It's the way of the forbidden woman in Proverbs 7, where we See the wise king advise his son, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Oh, her house is the way that leads to Sheol, the realm of the dead, to, to death itself, going down to the chambers of death. Joseph had 
abundance. Why not add one little thing to his abundance? It was just lying with her. It wasn't that big of a deal. He could have had more had he taken Potiphar's wife as well. It's kind of sounding like Adam and Eve when in the garden they were given everything of the garden except one tree. The one thing. They had abundance but ended up wanting more. We see Joseph here in this story that slows down in 11 through 18, verses 11 through 18, we see it zoom in on this one story where in the heat of the moment, the house is empty for the tempter and Joseph. And Joseph shows what he really believes. He shows what he actually believes will make his life successful. For Potiphar's wife in a last-ditch effort, She grabs his garment, demanding once more, lie with me. Having already made up his mind ahead of time, we read that he left his garment in her hand and fled, got out of the house. Those three verbs there show the quickness, the speed at which he responded. He left, he fled, he got out. Having been embarrassed for the last time, Potiphar's wife could not keep Joseph around lest she be exposed. And so she makes up a mirrored story claiming the reverse of the truth was done and deceived the other servants and her husband. Now, you as a congregation know that the Old Testament is not primarily a list of morals for us to follow in order to have favor with God. It's not a list of do's, do these, and don't do that. Um, If you read the Old Testament and you end up coming away with a list of do's or don'ts, miss the entire story. The bigger story, tracing the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and God's faithfulness to bring about his promises. We've missed the point of Jesus' own work on the cross. The Old Testament shows us our need for Christ. But you have to understand that there is a purpose here. Moses records these examples to serve as moral lessons for us. They are examples of how we should respond when testing and trials come our way. And we, being told through this story, uh, we're, we're being told, be like Joseph. Flee from sin. Leave. Flee. Get out. Turn around from sexual immorality. However, We may be like Joseph, resisting temptation for a time. We may even resist a second, maybe even a third time. But for many of us, sooner or later, Satan wears us down with his persistence. Joseph is, is an example to us of resisting temptation time and time again, day after day. But Christian, how long will you refuse sin before you give in to temptation? When we believe like Joseph that God is with us and strengthens us to live self-controlled, honorable lives of faith, we're able to respond like Joseph responded. Now, here are just a few, four truths to be exact, uh, of truths that Joseph understood that Christians are commanded to practice. The first one is this, decide in advance. Before you get in a situation like this, decide in advance. Joseph is a watchdog for sin. 
He doesn't allow sin to get close to his heart. He's decided ahead of time that when temptation confronts him, his course of action is to refuse it. He makes a pre-decision like Job, who in Job 31 says that he he made a covenant with his eyes to not gaze lustfully upon another person. He's like Daniel, who resolved not to defile himself. And it's because Joseph is living with a real belief in God's presence with him. There's a phrase that Christians for thousands of years have used uh, to remind themselves to live like Joseph, and it's this. It's the phrase quorum deo. Maybe you've heard it before, quorum deo. It's a Latin phrase that means before the face of God. The phrase is meant to encourage believers to recognize the sin in their hearts and to live as though the face of God were right in front of them. When the ad pops up before the video that you've selected, God is there to see what your thumb clicks on next. When that coworker says something provocative, God is there to hear your response. When your child disobeys for the hundredth time in 30 seconds alone, God is there to observe what words you use towards them. When we live a life of quorum Deo, before God's face, we are able to be honest with the sin in our own hearts. And so we should decide in advance to flee, to run. Okay, but what's the second truth that we ought to practice? It's this, inspect the evil. We know that our hearts are sinful, desperately wicked. Who can even know it? We should inspect the evil that we know lies within our hearts. Another way we could say this is make truth your ally. Make truth your ally. Whether Joseph was mopping floors or overseeing a million-dollar household budget, Joseph knew that sin is sin and that ultimately is against God. He understood the gravity of adultery as a sin, not only against his master, but also against God. He lived quorum Deo in his decision, even conveying to Potiphar's wife that sin was sin against God. Even in temptation, Joseph shared with others the truth that God is real. He is holy. And because of that, sin is serious. And so inspect the sin in your heart. Confess it and take a step forward. Third truth to practice is this. Take a step. Take a step. Living quorum Deo means that we don't just make decisions to please God. We take each step forward by his grace. We don't just decide with our words, oh, I'm going I'm to do what pleases God. No, we take steps forward. We put it in action. He empowers us by his spirit to obey. So when we take steps of obedience, we have to do it with God. If we're living quorum Deo, his face is right there. Let's talk to him about these steps that we want to take. You might need to do it prayerfully before his face. You might need to decide today, I'm going to prayerfully delete this app. I'm going to prayerfully find a brother or sister to regularly and specifically confess sin and temptation to. Your step might be, I'm not getting 
prayerfully, I'm not going to get on my phone between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. the next morning because I know where I am when I am weak. Or maybe prayerfully, I'm going to take a different route to work. God shows his faithfulness in this story and will show his faithfulness in your life that he will keep his promises. If you've taken a step to live quorum Deo, to be obedient, you will find yourself still close to giving in. And so there's a final truth that you need to practice. It's flee. Flee. If you are reminding yourself Every action, every word I say, every thought is before the face of God. He sees it all. He knows it all. And you still find yourself close. Kind of like how the beginning of Genesis says that sin crouches at the door. You feel that. You might just need to get up and go. From whatever sitting position, laying position, standing position, you might just need to get out of there. The New Testament is replete with instructions for Christians to follow Joseph's example. The Bible tells us with the same words to be like Joseph. Look at a couple examples here. So flee youthful passions. Next, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he says flee from sexual immorality. Maybe you need to consider God's will. Everybody wants to follow God's will, right? Well, what is God's will in regards to this? As it relates to this topic, 1 Thessalonians 4 says that the will of God is your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust. Notice that the goal is spirit-empowered, self-control. This isn't just a psychological method to help you gain self-control. Those might be helpful practically, but as it relates to sin and in your heart and sin before God, you need to go and you need to ask the Spirit to empower you to have self-control. We've got to get the gospel deep into our bloodstream so that we, when temptation comes, It's got to do more than command us to submit to its evil. No, it's got to grab us and struggle with us to get even an ounce of our heart's affections. And we must continue refusing its poisonous pathway to death. These are truths. These four truths are ones that we must put into practice. These truths are put into practice by Joseph Will you also practice them? Well, Joseph does what is right and wrong is done to him. He is lied about and punished unjustly. And the question the text raises is this. When everything is stripped away and Joseph suffers at the unjust hands of vengeance, will Joseph continue to live quorum Deo? Will he continue to live before the face of God? Will Joseph still even be successful without abundance? Well, verses 19 through 23 resoundingly say yes. So let's go there and into our third and final point this morning, and that's this. Success 
is based on abiding. Success is equal to, is defined by abiding, by God's presence with us. We see after the aftermath of Potiphar's wife sending Joseph to prison that, they, that things are not going Joseph way, Joseph's way. Yet he continues to trust God and keep his promises. And God does. A person has put it like this. God has determined that his people would not be marked by trouble-free lives, but by how we trust him in good times and bad. And he concludes it like this. Trusting him only in overt, in overt blessing is not trusting him at all. Let me say that again. Trusting him only in overt blessing is not trusting him at all. It's just enjoying the good gifts that he gives you. It's not enjoying the giver of the gifts, just the gifts. That's not trusting God. But God has determined that his people would not be marked by trouble-free lives, but by how we trust him in good times and bad. Well, Potiphar comes home, hears his wife's story, and he immediately and personally takes Joseph to prison. Forget her deception. You can imagine the rage that Potiphar must have felt toward Joseph. He takes him to the most secure prison in Egypt where the king's own prisoners are held. We might anticipate that this is the end of the story. This sentence surely meant death in prison, either life in prison or even execution. Time for Moses to take us back to Canaan to see what's going on in Jacob's family. Joseph, again, was as good as dead. But look at verse 21. Notice who went with him down into prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. You would think that surely Joseph by now, after being betrayed by his brothers and thrown into the pit, being shipped off to Egypt, being raised up to a high position in someone's house and then being lied about, and now he's back in prison that he would just give up. Things are not going his way at all. He does good, he faithfully obeys, he treats his master and his wife with dignity, yet he's gone from the pit to the penthouse, and now he finds himself in prison. But the Lord faithfully was with Joseph and allowed his integrity to be seen by the keeper of the prison so much that he grew, he grew in trust of Joseph in the same way that Potiphar does. Look at a couple of the similar phrases we've already looked at of Potiphar in verse 22 the keeper of the and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all, not just a few, all the prisoners who were in prison. And then in 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Oh, the headline for Joseph's life was the mark of Joseph's success. And by the end of the story, we understand that Joseph's hardest season, in Joseph's hardest season, the Lord made sure that he succeeded. When abundance was removed from him, Joseph was still successful because the Lord was with him. God's abiding presence defined Joseph's success. And Christian, Jesus has come. And you know his words about the vine I am the true vine. 
My father is the vine dresser. He goes on later and says, abide in me. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit that then fruitfulness will come as a result of abiding in Christ. He would say right as he's about to leave to enter back into the throne room of heaven, I am with you always, even until the end of the age when I come back and my presence will really be here. Like I will bring my kingdom and establish it here on earth and you will be with me in that kingdom. But here for the time being, I'm going to be with you but I must go away so that I can send a helper, so that I can send the Spirit to be with you. In good times and bad, when we abide in Christ, He abides in us. Let me ask you, have you resisted sin like Joseph did here? Have you resisted for your whole life? Have you lived Coram Deo even when no one else is watching? Have you always trusted the Lord when things aren't going your way? Have you been good and kind and obeyed every moment of every day of your life? It's a little secret I want to let you in on. No one has. There is no one who has lived that way. So if, just, so if that's just the way things are, what hope is there? What hope is there? Do we have a hope in life and in death? Yes, we do. I want to read to you the simple answer to such an astounding question from a child's book called Sophie and the Heidelberg Cat. The Heidelberg Cat responds to Sophie after Sophie's sadness over, I can't even be kind to my sister. The cat says in the story, the Bible tells us stories of hundreds of people and all of them disobey God except one. So hope doesn't come from the good things we do. It comes from as a gift from what Jesus has done. So let me tell you about what Jesus has done. Jesus came to earth and did resist sin his whole life. Even in the wilderness, he was tempted day after day after day by Satan. And he wasn't commanded, lie with me. He was commanded, bow to me. He was promised an abundance if he would bow. And what an abundance of what this world has to offer, yet he trusted God's word, that God is holy and sin is serious. He perfectly obeyed God's law every dot and iota. Every day of his life, every moment, he was, though, falsely accused. and was taken into custody, treated as a prisoner, stripped of his garments to expose his shame. Jesus was sentenced to death, and after being brought down to the grave, God did not abandon him. God was with him. And after being left for dead, he rose to reign from the th to the throne room over a kingdom. Well, very similar to Joseph. But why would he do this? Why would he bring himself so low? The record of the Bible tells us this. It's because he saw me as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost. He looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. It's at the cross where I beheld God's love displayed. Jesus suffering in my place. He bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. And now, because I have repented of my sins and trusted in the work of Christ, my song forever be not, 
My only boast is in my good works and my obedience. No, my only boast is Christ. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Friend, if you're here and you define success your, your whole life for being based on getting as many things as you can or life going just the way that you want, you are not living the life that Jesus called abundant. You're living a life of abundance, but not Jesus' abundant life. The abundant life that Jesus has come to offer you is a life where he is your life, where Jesus is your life, a life where you can say, God is holy. I am not. Jesus does save. So I'm going to respond, Christ, you are my life. Friend, if you've never turned from your sins to receive the grace of Jesus, I'll, I'll be in the back. I would love to talk with you. I'll be in the back. Come see me or see one of the other pastors or, or really just after service, find somebody around you. Just tap on their shoulder and ask them, hey, can you, can you tell me what it means for Christ to be my life? Oh, friend, would you turn from sin from your idea of a successful life? And would you trust that in good times and bad, that with God, success is not based on abundance, but on abiding? Let's pray. Father, come to you this morning thanking you for this story of Joseph. Lord, I ask that we would not attempt to be Jesus, that we would attempt to be Joseph. I know I can say, I am no Joseph. And if all I were to do was compare myself and my, my attempted works to gain favor with you, if I were to do all of that, I would be so self-focused, I wouldn't even have room to look to Jesus. Jesus, would you take us out of the way? Would you take things out of the way that might distract us from who you are, from your grace, from seeing it and wanting it and believing in it? Lord, would you allow us to not base success in this life on what we have materially or the friends we have or whatever? May, we, may it be that Jesus, you are with us from, from now until I die. You are with us and then I'll be with you forever. Oh, thank you for the promise, for the description, first of all, that you were with Joseph and then for Jesus, your promise for those who will repent of their sin, turning from it and will trust in you, that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. Thank you for this time in your word. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.